Welcome to the next edition of Lights in Europe. Uh, today we speak to Agnès Hubert, who's an experienced policymaker and a recognized author on EU gender equality policy. She had a very long career as a senior civil servant of the European Commission, focusing on development, social and employment policy, and especially social innovation and gender. Once done, she created the first European feminist think tank, Gender 5 Plus, and also started teaching gender studies at the College of Europe in Bruges and at Lucien's Pro. So in today's episode, we discuss the history of the gender policies in Europe, how far we managed to get over the last 30 years, and what's the future of gender activism. We also look into whether there is a crusade ongoing against the gender studies at the universities as one of the anti-democratic forces we see at the universities all around Europe. Many say that the era of, wo of a woman uh, that is ahead of us is finally the solution that will transform how we look at the reproduction of our businesses, planet and families, as opposed to the production madness that brought us where we are now. So listen what Agnes has to say about this. Hello, I'd like to welcome here Agnes Hubert. Uh, thank you very much for accepting the invitation. You're a very knowledgeable person in all gender empowerment issues because you've been working on, on the gender files your whole life. You've worked in the Euro European Commission uh, for 30 years as an advisor and other roles related to women empowerment. So why don't we start outlining a little bit what was your path and your roles and, and in the forms of your engagement with uh, the gender equality topic so that the listeners understand a little bit the context of where we're coming from. Uh, right. Uh, wh what was my path in, in uh, the commission, you mean? Or mm -hmm. I mean, I used to be in journalism before I got into the commission and uh, uh, working on development issues and, uh, and uh, um, uh, women issues as well. I uh, was doing my PhD on, on women issues. And um, so the, um, uh, I'm sort of, uh, my, my best period in the commission, I would say, uh, was when uh, I, beca I became the head of the, uh, uh, what is it, Equal, Equal Opportunities for Women and Men unit, right? Uh, which was, um, I was very lucky because it was in the 90s. And, uh, so it was already was in the 90s there was a unit for equal opportunities in Absolutely. the European Commission? Absolutely. It was created, I think, in 81 or 82, the uh, unit for equal opportunities. Which yeah. may make one wonder what is it we've been doing the past 30 years if we're still where we are. And uh, equal pay was in, in the treaty or co commitment of the Treaty of Rome in 1958. Huh? Oh my gosh. So, um, I mean, what have we been doing? No, I mean, there's been a lot of progress. Let's not be too sort of negative because, I mean, there's, there's been a lot of things happening. Um, in the 90s, it was quite exciting because there was a lot. I've always been a great believer in the European project, right? Despite when sometimes you see the day-to-day -day, uh, discussions or when you read the press that no, no decisions being made by the ministers again or things like that, it's a little bit sort of uh, disappointing. But still, I'm a great believer, and I'm, as a woman, I'm a great believer in the European project because it's a peace and solidarity project, and this is really what, what we need, right? And, uh, and nationalism for me is really the sort of uh, the number one enemy of, uh, 
uh, of sort of uh, women's advancement and so um, the and uh, also many people like to say that women's advancement can be one of the solutions against the rise of nationalism and extremism absolutely and vice versa as well. yeah absolutely very much so it's a sort of spearhead of uh, democracy and human rights yeah definitely and so Excellent. give us uh, some examples um, of what is it that you were working on in the 90s or at the beginning of the millennium? So how did the equality policy look like back then? So what, I mean, maybe it's uh, what sort of came together at that time. And let's take a little bit of a historical context. What, what came together? In the 80s, you had a lot of women came onto the labor market, right? I mean, in 1980, I think there was about 32% of women uh, on the labor market. And then in 83 already, there was 43%. You say it's not very much. We're now at sort of around 17 for as a EU average. But I mean, this was an important move because suddenly uh, women were sort of demanded by the labor market. Uh, because uh, uh, studies were longer, uh, because people were sort of going on uh, retirement earlier, etc. And the fact that uh, um, we g were getting into a service economy as well was important because you needed the skills of women to be good communicators in particular, to be, uh, I mean, it was really uh, the service economy uh, that was demanding women. So. Employers got very interested in having more, more women, so they started to get interested in the question of work-life balance. I mean, how do you do member states, right, to make sure that women are free to get on the labor market? So we had the employers, the unions as well. Um, and then in the 90s, uh, we got as well the, the uh, I mean, the civil society at national level, I'm sorry, so I mean, it was free enlargement. So uh, we're talking about the 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 old um, European Union, right? But I mean, at that stage, um, in the 70s, 80s, there was no interest of civil society movements uh, for the European Union, particularly women's movements, were feeling that it was a very distant project. They were not interested. And then suddenly, uh, there was this sort of catalyst, which was the question of women decision-making, right? And we had a uh, women commissioner, one of the rare women commissioner there, who was called Vaso Papandreou, and she said, well, why don't we organize a big meeting in Athens of women in power? And that was an amazing sort of catalyst for people to, I mean, women's movements, right, in particular, and people from all over the world, we had people from Argentina coming to us and say, well, how did you do that? How did you sort of negotiate this sort of declaration of Athens where you denounce the sort of lack of democracy because there is a deficit of women and so on and so forth? Well, women from India as well would try to replicate the, uh, the, the same thing uh, in, uh, in India. So it was a, a very exciting period for that. Plus, plus, I would say it was the Delors years as well. Um, and Jacques Delors, prob Jacques Delors in his time sort of uh, was, uh, I mean, it was a time where the, there was a lot of EU developments, right? I mean, Europe was becoming much more of a political object, right? And uh, it was much more into, it was not the sort of 
economic community that, uh, I mean, it was the economic community as well, but it was becoming political as well. So all these factors sort of got together, um, which meant that the uh, European policy was not only equal pay, of course, and the question of uh, uh, the uh, conditions of women in the labor market uh, and in the economy, but it was as well uh, the question of uh, representation of women in, uh, in political areas. It became as well the question of violence against women, where the first uh, uh, recommendation uh, against sexual harassment at work in 1992. Anyway, I'm sorry, this is a very much history, but uh, I do think that's probably where my belief in, into uh, the fact that Europe can do a lot for women uh, sort of was really uh, embedded. Right. And so all these uh, years were very impactful, obviously, for all the human rights and, and gender equality agenda. And now uh, moving forward, let's say those 20 years ahead at the moment where we are now with the first female president of the European Commission, with the commissioner Dali from Malta nominated to lead the equality portfolio. What do you feel are going to be the topics of the gender equality policy for the next five years? Obviously, we've dealt with uh, a couple of proposals under the past mandate. Some of them are still uh, stuck in the council because the member states uh, don't always walk the talk of uh, the values that they're declaring politically when it comes to voting for proposals like uh, anti-discrimination directive. So where do you see the opportunity for the next five years in case some of the proposals are not going to be passed simply because of the, the political setup in some of the member states. How would you, if you were the Commissioner for Equality, where would you pick your battles? What would be the priorities that you would focus on? Um, I must say, what, I mean, again, what is really important is to, uh, uh, I mean, I'm going to say the three I's. Institutions, um, uh, ideas and interest, okay? So you underlined very well how much now the sort of gender issues are much stronger in institutions. And it is paramountly important, right? You mentioned for over 40% of uh, MEPs in the European Parliament as well. This is extremely important, right? Um, so that's one of, uh, one of the factors is sort of really, and I think the, the uh, I mean, uh, the, the, the president, uh, Commissioner Dali, I mean, the, the commission will be ready to fight um, uh, probably stronger than um, in the commission before for gender equality issues and to defend it in the, in the open, uh, uh, Council of Ministers as well. Okay, so this is one strong element, even though we've got some, I mean, all governments are difficult, but uh, uh, I think we've got some, some very difficult uh, a very difficult configuration, configuration uh, in the council, and still this unanimity rule, which is, uh, in my view, completely obsolete. Right. Um, so it is going to be difficult. Uh, on what is on the uh, table of the commission at the moment, the question of equal pay with the uh, transparency directive, which is extremely important. Uh, the question of violence against women with accession of the EU to the uh, uh, Istanbul Convention, and beyond. I'm going to say because I mean the Istanbul Convention is not the end of the story when you see how much the uh, violence against women cost to European citizens 
every, uh, and it, I'm not, uh, I'm only talking about cost, uh, financial cost. The direct cost, cost yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, but I mean, if, I mean, it, you cannot count the sort of, the, the, the psychological damage to women, right? Uh, so I'm only talking about cost of this. So this the is question where an important angle of the data for policy always comes in, that we are struggling to get 0 0.2, 0 0.3, 0 0.5% of GDP growth through all kinds of policies, but then we have all these these mountains of icebergs that we're not looking at. If only we tackled these, these problems that are ongoing in the society, which caused us full percentage uh, points of, of the GDP growth. It would Absolutely. Yeah, there would be so much potential to boost the economic growth if only there was more investment going into these kind of policies. And it all starts with having the right data. It all starts with the women being able and willing to report what's ongoing, yeah. being empowered to do so. But yeah. There's been a, l a large number of studies which have showed I mean, obviously, you've got to make a lot of hypotheses, which have shown that if there was full gender equality, there would be between 12 and 15 percent growth. Um, I mean, supplementary growth. So, I mean, yeah, and we're so talking you were about. Saying we're talking institutions, ideas, and uh, what was it? Instruments. Uh, and interest. interest. Interest is all the civil society and people. I mean, basically, how do people mobilize for policies? Right. So it's through associations, through NGOs, through um, sort of, I mean, how do, and, and more and more as well. I mean, even individual people can have a voice. I mean, you're sort of having a voice doing this blog. I mean, in a lot of individual citizens are taking the responsibility to sort of make their, their, their voice heard. So you were active for 30 years with the European Commission and then uh, you founded one of the gender think tanks here in Brussels called Gender 5 Plus. Yeah. So speaking about the citizens having voice and, and policy experts stepping into these new roles, where do you see your territory really between the institutions? What can a think tank like yours uh, out of a plethora of all kinds of think tanks that are um, in the policy making territory fighting for women empowerment? Where do you see ro your role? Uh, how do your typical days look like, and where do you see your impact going? Well, I I felt it was important to have a feminist think tank because um, in some of my latest jobs in the Commission, I was working for the the think tank of the president, and we were uh, in touch with all the sort of different think tanks of the uh, um, I mean uh, in the Brussels Beltway, basically. And um, and every time I was sort of uh, raising the gender issue, I mean, there was a lot of goodwill. People were just listening, etc. But I mean, and we were getting to another subject. There was no knowledge about the sort of the transformative perspective that uh, I mean, taking a gender point of view can can bring, right? And this is where I thought that's what we should bring to the policy-making circles and in Brussels and, and everywhere else. Uh, I mean, uh, to sort of see, I mean, to try and sort of convince people and make, uh, I mean, argue that, I mean, taking a gender perspective uh, is very often when you do policies, I mean, it's very often going to the users. What is the interest of the users for this, for this uh, policy? I mean, it's not making a top-down policy where, where you're going to 
sort of decide for, I mean, what people want, but it is what the sort of, sometimes the most modest users, because you would have them, you would have women at the, at the, at the bottom of the pile, uh, what the most modern, uh, the most modest users uh, uh, are going to sort of uh, uh, think and are they going to benefit of the policy or not. So, I mean, this is this transformative function. Another transformation that gender is sort of bringing is this sort of more caring and uh, sort of more sort of uh, solidarity uh, uh, image uh, because there is a need for, I mean, in, in European policies in particular, there is a need for going more towards sort of, uh, I mean, growth in the traditional way and uh, sort of human growth, which is sort of more transverse toward, uh, transferred toward well-being. So now looking at this from a career advisory perspective, if there are women and men who feel feminist in their heart, who would like to enter the space of uh, gender activism, let's say, what would be your advice for them from the perspective of where is the next generation of this women empowerment activism going? Because in the past years, we've seen a lot of push, new, new platforms, new movements rising up, not even speaking about Me Too. It really has become a topic that is out there. Uh, but at the same time, we see a lot of criticism for the opaqueness of how policies are created, a bit push for uh, greater transparency and greater um, uh, smoothness of the channels through which citizens can impact the policymaking process, right? So m many groups out there, typically the ones who are not in the Brussels headquarters, feel discriminated against because they are not physically present here and they don't have the access to to uh, the possibility of attending the meetings in person, which is why they think their voices are not heard because that's how typically the policies are created in a big more closed space that we're in. So what would be your advice to the people who want to contribute to the narrative without necessarily being here and opening up, let's say, their own uh, consultancy practice? Well, I, I think it's important to fight where you are. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of people who would be fighting to for the right of migrants or to help migrants, for instance, integrate into society. And this is extremely important. There is a lot of people who would work with lone mothers who are in a much more difficult situation than, than others. I mean, they, they is, I mean, to fight where you are is really probably where you're going to be the most efficient. Um, I personally do feel that it's uh, uh, extremely important to fight at European level because this is a field of policy making, first of all, which has got to be participatory and which is going towards more and more participation. I worked, uh, as I told you, on the uh, uh, white paper on European governance. And I mean, there were thousands of, of recommendations which are not implemented yet, but which, I mean, policymakers see these days that you cannot create policies without people, right? And without so having the partners on the ground in the absolutely. national administration and also absolutely. the local stakeholders, which can yeah. be especially these kind of uh, groups and movements on the ground, which are there to support uh, the administration in implementing the Absolutely. Actions, right? Because once you've made the policies, you've created the directive, it's going to the council, you're quite happy. But who is going to implement it, right? I mean, you've got a number of actors at national level who more important, but I mean, it's really the users who are actually going to call for the 
called the implementation of the policy. Which is probably the weakest link, link of the whole gender process because oftentimes we have some empowering legislation, we have some policies, but then the change happens on the ground only if this opportunity is used for concrete programs and, and support groups for those vulnerable groups or if they're implemented by the employers or by the startups or by the investors, for instance, who have an opportunity to find the fund the startup and they, yeah. for whatever reason, uh, choose to uh, go for a gender bias yeah. and not fund so many women startups, for instance. Yeah. So, as you're saying, it's the weakest link of the chain which then breaks it, whatever we are envisioning here at the European level. Yeah. But at the same time, at, I'm sure at sort of a uh, local, regional level, um, even national level, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, of people who are sort of well aware, probably more men than, uh, than women, but still there are women's groups as well who are qu quite active in sort of using the social fund, uh, social fund money, using the Daphne program, using uh, EU programs that are actually sort of uh, um, helping people directly um, rather than sort of uh, just comforting the national uh, sort of uh, set up. And so one of your engagement forms is also that you're a teacher of uh, gender studies at various schools here in right. uh, Brussels, in uh, Bruges at the College of Europe and also in France at Sciences Po. Um, how do you see the future of the gender studies program going? Is it here and is it here to stay or is it un undergoing transformation like many other studies programs where gender studies are are they going to be incorporated in the, into other horizontal, let's say, human rights uh, programs? Or can you see an opportunity being out there in the academic uh, field of really of an opportunity of programs being more focused on gender aspect of our policies? Well, I mean, the, it's, a, it's a very topical question because, I mean, the whole academic community is obsessed and rightly uh, by the sort of decision to suppress gender studies from the, uh, the Central European University, right? As an example. Yeah. As an example. So, I mean, it is the proof that it has to be, no, I mean, it, it has to be sort of fought for and uh, it has to grow in uh, in universities. I mean, I think that's a very important point that the gender fight actually also includes the fight that the academic uh, in the academic sphere, where Absolutely. the survival of these programs is actually also one of the the elements of what we would like to achieve yeah. and see them growing at, at more universities. Yeah, but some of the academics that have been sort of studying the process as well and who are very active on the anti, are very active. I mean, they are sort of developing uh, analysis of uh, the anti-gender movement, right? Um, they are actually defending the, the thesis that, I mean, it is the, the beginning of, you suppress gender studies, and it is the beginning of suppressing critical thinking from society, right? From the universities. And if you suppress critical thinking, obviously you can have sort of authoritarian regime who are going to benefit temporarily from it. But I mean, you don't have all this sort of wealth of sort of ideas that come together and that create sort of really much better societies, right? 
How do you attract the best talent to gender studies? Because typically they would be put in the box of more philosophical social sciences boxes where it's all very nice to be a feminist and look into the history of the feminist movement, but this is not what really is moving and, and turning uh, the earth around, right? So how do you make it as sexy as all those programs focusing on tech or innovation, on really the jobs of the future? I'm sure that because of the war for talent that we're in, it's also difficult for the gender studies to, to attract not only those people who are feminists in their hearts and minds, but also to tap into those other talent pools of people who wouldn't consider it as the, as the first choice, but who can bring in the interdisciplinarity and then when they're trained in the gender policies, they can then be ambassadors of, of the equality in wherever they go. Well, I think every, everybody should be ambassadors for, for a sort of a, a gender perspective into policies. Now, I see it with my, my students, female and male, right? Uh, that, I mean, they do see that, I mean, studying uh, gender studies or gender policies or is something that opens up a different, I'm going to say a different word. No, it's not a different word a different perspective on the world, right? And I mean, you don't do gender studies only, you very often, uh, I mean, most often you would combine it with economics, with technology, with whatever, with uh, uh, science or literary uh, sort of, um, uh, sort of uh, subjects. But, um, uh, but a course in gender studies helps you to understand the world in a different way, and this is what knowledge is about right, to enlarge your capacity to understand the, the, the world with all the tools you've got. So uh, I do think it's important, yes. And so where do you see the future going? We often say that the future is a woman. <laughs> Many people uh, <laughs> like to say that the next decade or the next century will be about the power of the women really taking over and, and bringing a new quality of leadership and new choices around and about how our countries are run, how our businesses are run, what kind of priorities uh, we place on our policies, where do we invest money, uh, what kind of criteria we take into consideration in any kind of investment or consumer or a business decision we're taking. So uh, where do you see the future going? What is the future that we would like to see where you think this whole gender narrative can be valuable? Something which we don't say enough is that we live in very affluent societies, right? Um, I mean, in general, uh, we are much richer than we've ever been, right? I mean, obviously, there are strong inequalities uh, between people, between countries, etc., but probably less than there has ever been, even between the developing world and the developed world. So. Um, the I do think that, uh, um, I mean, we've now got to get to a sort of different stage of sort of pushing production, pushing sort of, uh, I mean, and we're pushing production, but we've always ignored the reproduction uh, sphere, right? And the reproduction sphere is what is now becoming important for people not to have more babies. I mean, maybe having babies in, is important as well, but I mean, it's not to have more babies, it's to be more caring. It's to have a more caring uh, sort of uh, 
a culture for the environment. Uh, it is, uh, I mean, the, the mm, uh, classical metaphor of sort of, you cut a tree, you increase the GDP. I mean, we don't want to cut so many trees. I mean, the, the program of, of uh, um, uh, Franz Timmermans is going to be to plant trees, right? So we need a more caring soci um, um, sort of society, uh, and we need, we need a more caring economy. This is where gender is so important. It's not just to sort of push women to higher positions, but if there are women in higher positions, uh, I hope that, and if there is a critical mass of women in higher position, I do hope this is going to change the, uh, the, the sort of mentality because the traditional sort of um, function of women has been to look after the family, right? It's an historical fact, right? And uh, the woman has been more responsible for this sort of solidarity. And what we need is solidarity at the moment and care. So I do hope that this is the changes that uh, women can bring and, and some uh, enlightened men as well. Very beautifully said. Thank you very much. And let's hope we will see more of this kind of Europe in five years. Thank you, Lucia. Thank you for listening. For follow-up, you can find us on all major podcast platforms and all social media platforms, including our Instagram, Lights on Europe. So feel free to go there now and leave us your review, likes, feedback, as well as tips on who would you like to hear interviewed next time. Bye.